Good morning. We have to flash the lights a lot. Everybody's having too much fun. It's like, hey, come on in. Let's do church. All right, so I'm going to do the missions prayer this morning. Uh, who are we praying for? Jeff Woodkey. Jeff Woodkey. And who is his captor? Yes. Abu Akhali. Remember, it's, it's not the ch down here, it's the ch up here. Ghali. Everybody practice one more time. Ch and ch. Two different sounds, two different letters. Everybody learn Arabic, it's fun. So Abu Akhali. Um, so Jeff was taken in 2016 at gunpoint, kidnapped um, in, in North Africa. Uh, he is still being held by Abu Akhali, the gentleman. He, uh, that's not his original captor, but that's who he's being held by. He is still alive. We don't know exactly where he is. So just be praying for Jeff, his safety, and or his freedom. I leave it to you to decide what. And then also be praying for his captor, that this guy would meet Jesus, and that he would come to faith in the Lord. Um, so today, uh, I do want to focus on a city in Ukraine. Everybody knows what's going on, hopefully, if you don't, where or have you been living. Um, so I focus on one city in Ukraine called Mariupol. Mariupol, it's a southeastern city on the Sea of Azov. So for all of you Americans who are really bad at geography, the Sea of Azov is just north of the Black Sea. It's this little pocket of water just north of the Black Sea that's connected. Uh, Mariupol is on the coast there, and it's pretty close to Russia. Um, what's been going on is that is a besieged city. They've been out of power for six days. They've been out of water for longer, and they have no cell service, which that's probably the worst part, right? No, no, thank you. But it's, it's really bad. They are besieged, so there's nothing coming into the city. Uh, and people have no way to evacuate. They have no way to get out. So I want to pray for Mariupol, because uh, there are still a lot of civilians in there, and the concern is what, what, what's going to happen? How do they get out, or how do we get aid in? And neither of which can happen right now. Um, so for those of you who don't know, tomorrow is a third round of talks between Ukraine and Russia. We'll see how it goes. We have no idea. But uh, what I want to pray for is that these cities, this isn't the only one, this is just one of the predominant ones, these cities that are being besieged, that no aid can come in and no people can come out, I want to pray that those cities are one of the, the topics of interest in the talk tomorrow, in the talk on Monday between Russia and Ukraine, so that these people can either get aid or get out. Um, if you haven't been following the refugee crisis that's been going on, uh, it's the largest amount of refugees that have fled one country since World War II. That's 1.5 million in 10 days. Pretty intense. So there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in that region of the world that's more than just the war. Now, it's, it's part of the war. It's, it's a factor of the war. But I want to pray for these cities because, I mean, you, you can only, we can't imagine being one of the people in those cities without power for five days with no water. And yes, they're on the sea, but that's salt water, so you'd have to desalinize it. And then on top of that, not being able to communicate at all. I mean, not having cell service is a big deal in this day and age. You can't communicate with people. And so let's pray for Mariupol, but also keep in mind these other cities that are smaller, um, that are spread out throughout the Sea of Azov and then even down towards the Black Sea. We're going to pray that that would be a topic of conversation tomorrow uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, oh God, we just bow before you. We thank you that we can bring our prayers, our requests, our petitions to you. 
And God, we thank you, Lord, that you are almighty, that you orchestrate things to happen on earth, God. And I pray that it is for your glory. God, I pray for these cities, Mariupol being the predominant one. I pray that you would provide for these individuals, these families, these soldiers, God, whoever's in that city, I pray that they would be provided for, that water and food would be sent to them and get through, or that they would be able to come out. God, I pray that you'd protect those individuals as bombardments do continue towards those cities. God, I pray that uh, these people would be set free, that they would be let out, and that, God, they would be able to, to find a place where they are provided for, whether that be a family's home somewhere else in Ukraine or whether it be out of the country in a refugee camp. God, I pray that your omnipotence would be known, that tomorrow as Russia and Ukraine meet together, that Mariupol and these other cities would be a topic of conversation and that they, they would reach some kind of agreement to either get things in or let people out. And God, as we talk about being trapped or being imprisoned, God, we also think of Jeff. Bless our brother in the Lord. Father, I pray that you would encourage him today and that you would just be there with him. Encourage him. He's probably sleeping now. And God, I pray that um, he would just be provided for. God, not just spiritually, not just emotionally, but physically as well. And God, we pray for Abu Aghali, that you would also bless that man, that he would find you, that he would be haunted by dreams of Jesus and that he would be, do nothing and be able to do nothing but bow the knee and submit to Jesus Christ being the Son of God who died on the cross and was raised again. So, Lord, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. This will be our launching point. We're actually going to have a Bible study in Genesis today. Um, there's three reasons for our Bible study in Genesis 14 this morning. Uh, the first is that the writer of Hebrews is insisting upon us that we understand the priesthood of Jesus in connection to the priesthood of Melchizedek. So I want us to understand who Melchizedek is. He appears absolutely only once in the entire Bible. His literal appearing happened just once, and it was fairly short. He's referred to again in Psalm 110, but, uh, and that is what the writer of Hebrews has been saying. For example, in chapter 5, verse 6, he said that uh, referring to Jesus in his priesthood, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So uh, for that is one reason I'd like us to go back to Genesis and spend some time looking at uh, Melchizedek. Another reason uh, is quite simply to uh, encourage us that when we do read the Old Testament, we are to be always looking for examples of Jesus. And uh, Melchizedek provides a very easy platform to do that. For example, with your Bibles open here in Hebrews, look at chapter 7, for in this chapter is where the writer of Hebrews really dives deep into Melchizedek. And I'll just pick it up at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, 
first being translated, now what he's doing is he's translating the man's name, Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness. And he is from Salem. He's the king of Salem, and Salem means peace. Okay? Uh, he's a king of peace. Uh, verse 3, very interesting verse. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest forever. Made like the Son of God. In other words, he's resembling or he's typical of Jesus. All right? So just by virtue of his name, the meaning of his name, King of Righteousness, and he was the king of Salem, which was just the Old Testament term of Jerusalem. Salem means peace. He's king of righteousness. He's king of peace. Now, those descriptors alone really interest us or ought to interest us as we're reading Genesis, as we learn a little bit about Melchizedek. Um, so that's the second reason, just to encourage you that, you know, to spice up your reading of the Old Testament, to be looking for Jesus in there. And this is one of the clearest examples. And we have the, the confidence to make uh, spiritualizations, if you will, because of what is written here in Hebrews. Third and final reason is today is communion. Uh, so today uh, we will share in remembering Jesus's uh, death and resurrection for our sin, the forgiveness of our sin. And uh, you all know that uh, in the Last Supper, Jesus broke bread and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he drank some wine and he said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you. Bread and wine. Now, uh, we have a rice wafer and juice, <laughs> okay? But they're symbolic of his body and his blood, bread and wine. I want to put a verse on the screen for you this morning. John 6, Jesus said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Sounds weird and gross. What Jesus is talking about, he's, he's talking to friends and he's telling them that if you believe in what's coming, that is, my death and resurrection, then I will live inside of you. My body was bread, so to speak, my blood was wine, right? Last Supper, and that's Last Supper language that he's encouraging. But the thing I wanted you to notice from this before we jump into Genesis is that basically what Jesus is telling us, that he gave his life for you so that he could give his life to you. And friends, I just want us to experience a living relationship with Jesus Christ in real time, in all of the situations that we face in life. He gave his life for you so that he could give his life to you. Do you see what Jesus says here? 
my blood, if he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, he's not speaking literally. He's talking about if you believe and bring me into your life by faith, then you abide in me and I in you. And he goes a little bit further. As the living Father sent me, and I live by the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. So I say all that because Melchizedek, as you will see, when he meets Abraham, guess what? He shows up with bread and wine. So I just want to make that point to you now, and we can go back to Genesis And um, Genesis chapter 14. In this, uh, we're entering into now the life of Abraham. His name at this point is Abram. God will change his name to Abraham. For the sake of convenience and familiarity, I will continually refer to him as Abraham, if you don't mind. Even though he's referred to here as Abram in chapter 14. But... Uh, Abraham, at this point in his life, I just want to remind you that his whole life is wrapped up in God. Abraham was an idol worshiper, lived somewhere in Iran or Iraq, okay, back in the day. God appeared to him. He turned his back on his family, his country, his religion, everything, everyone. And he and his wife and his nephew Lot headed out to a land and they didn't even know where they were going. God said, just keep going, I'll tell you when you get there. And finally, they arrive in the land of Canaan, and God says, this is it. Genesis 12, God blesses Abraham, and he, and he promises him uh, that he will be a blessing to all nations, and that he'll become a great nation, and kings will come out of him. Problem, he doesn't have any kids, and they're old, and they're getting older. But they obeyed. Here they are in the promised land. Life hasn't been easy for Abraham. Once they finally got to the promised land, things went south a little bit, literally, in that a famine struck the land, and he and his wife Sarah went down to Egypt for a while to just to survive. Uh, had a little trouble while they were in Egypt. They eventually came back. And then after that, he and his nephew Lot, who by this time is sort of a grown man, has got his own thing going, and uh, Lot's farm and Abraham's farm, they started to run out of pasture land. And so a fight broke out among the, the herdsmen, and Abraham said, look, man, you pick, you can go wherever you want. I'll go the, elsewhere. He was just a very gracious man, Abraham. Now we come to chapter 14, and uh, I'll just read the chapter. Uh, There's a lot of names in here that aren't important to us, but I just want you to get a sense of where we're at. It says, It came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, and Chedileomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, Shemember, king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the salt sea, down by the Dead Sea. Twelve years they served Chedileomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Okay, pause. So we have four kings from the east who do what kings do. They have power, they want to get more power. So they travel west 
They take over this area near the Red Sea. You have four kings who impose tax and demand obedience to their rule. And that goes on for 12 years. In the 13th year, these uh, five confederation of five cities and their respective kings rebel. Verse 5. Verse five. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shava. You can laugh. It's okay. I laugh all the time at these names. <laughs> And the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishvat, that is Kadesh, <clears throat> excuse me, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedorlaomer and his friends. Verse 10, Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Abraham's brother's son, his nephew, who dwelt in Sodom, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abraham, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the oak trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshgal and brother of Anar, and they were allies with Abraham. Now when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 train servants who were born in his own house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. By the way, it's about 100 miles. He went a hundred miles. He went further. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus, another hundred miles. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods and all as well as the women and the people and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the God Most High. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. Let them take their portion. After these things, next verse, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. 
So what I'm going to do today, since we are instructed by the writer in Hebrews that Melchizedek, to say the least, he's a type of Christ. To say the most, it could be Jesus himself. And that's not something that's unusual in the Old Testament. Jesus sometimes would show up pre-Christmas in, in form. In fact, he does that with Abraham in just a few more chapters. Jesus and a few other guys come walking along, and Abraham sees these three men, and he starts to have dinner with them, and he dialogues with them. And then all of a sudden you realize that one of the three is referred to as the Lord. And Abraham's bowing down to him. And so I think it's significant that Abraham paid tithe to this man Melchizedek. All right? So as we go through this, I, there's, there's a whole bunch of lessons for us. And remember, my, my point here, brothers and sisters, is to be encouraged that Jesus gave his life for us so he could give his life to us. And I think there's a great bunch of lessons that we can learn from this experience of a man of faith, Abraham, who has an encounter with the high priest, Melchizedek, who brings bread and wine, which are emblems, as we know now, of the Lord's very life and, and death and resurrection. And he's coming to Abraham at a critical time in, in his life. I just want us to try to understand that the meeting that Abraham has with Melchizedek comes at the very same time that the king of Sodom shows up. And Abraham is fresh off a battle where, where I think supernaturally, 318 and himself, <clears throat> excuse me, go out and pursue this confederation of four kings. And Abraham wins. And so there's a whole lot of, uh, of things I just want to bring out that and I think we can, we can find personal connection to. Even though it's Old Testament, even though it's Old Testament, I, I'm going to say that Melchizedek really so much represents my Jesus, my high priest, and how he encourages me and encourages you in a variety of different situations. All right, so the very first thing I just want to say is that uh, Abraham has uh, gone out of his own land. As I've already mentioned, <clears throat> his whole life got wrapped up in following the true and the living God. So much so that he turned his back on idolatry to follow by faith a God that he had never seen. But he had heard his word and he was convinced it was one of the most powerful conversions in all of the Bible that this man would come out of literally of nowhere but would have an encounter with a living God that convinced him so thoroughly that he was willing to, to leave everything and go and live as a foreigner in an entirely different culture over in the land of Canaan. He'd left his home, his country, his religion, his extended family. He's living in a foreign land and he's waiting for the realization of a promise that is of a son. He's waiting for this promise that God had given to him. And he's waiting and is waiting and they're aging and, and Sarah's gone through menopause and he's becoming less whatever. 
and, and things were getting difficult. And then there's famine and there's hardship and there's strife and there's war in spite of obedience. Summary, conclusion, the whole business of believing in God and His Word has been challenging to say the least, at times disappointing, frustrating, and downright hard. And guess who shows up at a critical moment in his life? The high priest. Bread and wine. So if you feel like you're alone and you feel like following Christ is challenging and disappointing and frustrating and you sense that I know there's, He's got a plan for my life but I'm not seeing it unfold, feed on the bread and the wine. And I just want to remind you what, how, how gracious and how encouraging our high priest or how encouraging Melchizedek was as he came to Abram. And he acknowledges that God has a blessing on your life, Abraham. I know that was given to you a number of years earlier, and I know that you're waiting for the, for the fulfillment of that. But oh, what a word it was. What a cup of cold water in a hot, parched, dry season in his life. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. God Most High. It's the first time God is referred to as Most High, El Elyon in the Hebrew. Right? It's the first time. It's also the first time there's a mention of tithe in the Bible. <laughs> right here. He comes in, the, in, in what an encouraging word. Just, what am I saying? I'm saying, brothers and sisters, come back to Jesus Christ. He gave His life for you so He could give His life to you. You abide in Me, I abide in you. And so in real time... You take your, your thoughts captive and you come to Jesus Christ and you go, wait a minute, you died for me. You've, you've put your spirit in me and I know that you are my God and God is my Father. I know this. And I know that you are good. And just let Him, again, restore your faith at a time when it's, it is challenging. God's for you is what Melchizedek says. That's what our high priest, our Jesus, our, who lives forever, by the way. Remember? This is what we learned in Hebrews. He's a high priest forever. He was high priest. He was the mediator and the sacrifice to God for the sin of the world. But now he lives to continually mediate and to, and to bring us into a, a living, reconciled relationship with our Father. And he's just reminding it. No, God is for you. You know, Beck and I did not collaborate on the worship this morning, but when I saw that the blessing was going to be sung, I'm like, that's pretty cool. He is for you. He is for you. He is for you. It's like, I get it. He's for you. But do we get it? Our hearts lie to us. Our sin deceives us. He's not for me anymore. And Abraham's at a critical moment in his life, as we're going to discover, with just a little thought and observation, a whole bunch of stuff came out of this little scene. God's for you, and verse 20, God is with you. God blessed and blessed by be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Worship. <laughs> here, Lord, here. 
bread and wine. Feed on the life of your high priest in real time. There's a couple other things I want to think about with you from this little story. Another lesson. There's a lesson here for dealing with a carnal brother or a carnal sister within the body of Christ. Lot was a carnal man. Lot was a carnal man. We can think of this from a couple of different ways. We can think of it from Abraham's perspective and we can think of it from Lot's perspective. Lot was a carnal man. I want to show you something. Look in chapter 13, verse 10. And we'll refer to this a couple of times, but here in chapter 13, verse 10, Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan that was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. So it was pleasing to the eye. In other words, what's happening here is Lot, as I mentioned, his his cattle, his herdsmen, and Abraham's herdsmen, they were starting to fight. And so Abraham says, look, man, you choose. So that lifts up his eyes, and he sees something beautiful. He looks at something beautiful. Verse 12. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan and dwelt in the cities of the and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent as far as Sodom. Verse 13. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now I just want to show you a progression. He looked at something beautiful. And then he moved his tent and he got close to Sodom. You read it with me in chapter 14. It says in verse 12 that uh, the kings took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom. Do you see the digression? He looked at something beautiful. He got a little closer to the fire and then he moved right in. And by the time he's did not control his flesh, if you will, he finds himself living in this land taken captive. And it's interesting to me that the king of Sodom fled. He had no interest in Lot. He just wanted to get stuff from him to benefit from Lot living in his city. And when trouble came, the king of Sodom ran to the hills. He didn't even engage in the fight and defend his own people. So Lot is an interesting person in dealing with somebody who is carnal. So I'm just going to say, brothers and sisters, we're hopefully we're all in some personal close relationship with a brother and a sister, and there's discipleship going on. And the hard part of that sometimes is that there's a brother who is just carnal. Look, friends, if you're looking at something beautiful, if you're stuck in pornography, feed on the bread and wine. Come into the light. Come into the light. Have somebody that you can just talk to, pray with, confess. It starts with look. And then, he, and then it digresses until you're in trouble. I understand, Jesus says. I understand difficult people. I rescued many. 
I provided. I showed grace to them many times. And that was Abraham's situation here. If you think of this from Abraham's side, he extended a whole lot of time, energy, and, and, and risk to save his brother. It's interesting that Abraham apparently had no interest in this little thing going on down by the Dead Sea until he gets word that his relative is caught. He's like, i got to go get him. It's a beautiful example of Galatians 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So Abraham did his job. He went out and he wrestled hard and he won back his brother. And for a period of time, Lot's standing there with Abraham as the king of Sodom comes out and he's been shown grace. He's been given a second chance. He's been set free. Come on, brother. Man up. Woman up. Look how good God is to you. We know the story. He went back. Went back and lived in Sodom. And nearly perished there. Peter says he tormented his own soul. He tormented his righteous soul as he was living in in an environment that he would not extract himself from. Which gives the flip side of that sometimes confusing portion there right there in Galatians after... Paul instructs us to bear one another's burdens. A couple verses later, he says, for each will have to bear his own load. (laughs) I can only go so far, my man, my sister. And the Lord is respectful of your agency. Very respectful of that. Isn't that clear from the prodigal son story? Like, I know this is not going to go well for you, son, but this is what you want. So I'll write the check and I'll be praying for you. And he came home. Feed on Jesus Christ. He understands what it's like to deal with carnal people. And he'll instruct us and give us the grace to go out of our way for somebody who doesn't seem to be thankful for all that you've done for him. And He'll give us the wisdom that's necessary to just say, you better go. You better do what you got to do. <laughs> but just know I'll be here when you get back. Which leads to another lesson. An entirely separate point. And that is the problem of evil itself. Just the problem of evil itself. When I think of Sodom and Gomorrah and the reputation that they unfortunately will always be known for their homosexuality and perversion that was just off the charts within that place. It's, uh, it presents an interesting lesson, I think. Because as I said, you know, Abraham, he goes out of his way. He rescues the people from Sodom and Gomorrah. And he brings them back. And and you'd almost have to say, dude, you got away with that. (laughs) And And again, for a period of time, it's like, king of Sodom, you've come out here. We're standing here in this valley. And here's you. And here's Melchizedek. And, and, and you're like, whatever is going on here. And, 
when it's all done, he has zero regard for the grace that has been shown to him. He just wants to pay off Abraham. I mean, there's no regard for grace. And it's like this man of God has gone out of his way to, to fight a war that he wasn't willing to fight. And, and he's won the war and he comes back and goes, how can I pay you? Like, pay me? You know, God's grace is free. They have zero regard. And when it's all said and done, Lot, Sodom, and Gomorrah go back and restart all over again. It's kind of a tough situation, this, this problem of evil. As I said, it would appear that they got away with it. <laughs> And then on the other side of that, when I, when I read these verses here in, in, in Genesis 13, please hear me. Lot lifted up his eyes, and the region where Sodom and Gomorrah was, was beautiful. It was fruitful. By all definition, just simply what the scriptures reveal, it looks like it's prosperous and getting along well and things are good and it's healthy. Everything's good on the outside. But then we get that interesting verse 13, but inside they were wicked, exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And so this problem of evil, it seems like they got away with it. And then it can, you can think of it as a, in another way, and it seems like sometimes everything looks good on the outside, healthy and, and productive and fruitful and growing and, and just good. It, marriages can look like that. Families can look like that. Churches can look like that. Institutions can look like that. But inside, it's corrupt. And there's oppression, and there's abuse, and there's exploitation, and there's victimization, and there's domineering, and there's power. I'm sorry, but doesn't Ravi Zacharias kind of make that point? Oh, but on the outside, Fruitful, powerful, inside, horrible. My heart breaks because I'm becoming more and more aware of, of this type of thing in the church, in the evangelical church, and the spiritual damage that that's done to people. People are struggling. They're, they're like... What's the buzzword? Deconstruct now. Abraham is standing in that valley and those people got away with it. And everything looked good on the outside. And he's wrestling with that. Here comes the bread and wine. Here comes my Jesus. And he says to me, I drank that poison. I took it personally. I understand. And by the way, 
when he rose again from the dead, do you ever notice Jesus didn't go back to the temple? He went to his followers. And he showed them, it's me. I'm alive. I've conquered death. I've defeated the devil. I want, God wants you, his church, to know that. That he wins in the end. Back in the temple, the high priests and all the guys thought they got away with it. Till about 50 days later, Peter stands up and says, he's back. <laughs> oh, no, no, he's not in the, in the grave. In fact, go check it out. He's gone. He's alive. Cover up. Scandal. Slander. Conspiracy. Just kept breathing out all that stuff. They had to live with that. Sometimes we have to live with just watching evil prevail. And that's a hard thing to do. Especially if you're on the the victimized side of some corrupt spiritual leader. That's a very hard thing. I can't even go there. Jesus can. The high priest shows up and he offers my life. Feed on me. It might take some other help besides that. I'm understanding that now. But you start there. Another interesting point that I want to bring out of this story, and again, I'm just trying to find some application from the life of Melchizedek, who is a type of my high priest, Jesus Christ. And, 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 and you know, it's interesting, because it's like Mel, if you don't mind, I just it's easier, right, Melchizedek. It's like, Mel, why didn't you show up when Abraham got into the promised land? Right? I mean, he, like, here he is. He's waiting for God to speak. He finally, God says, hey, here you're home. This is it. This is the promised land. It'd be really nice if Mel had showed up and said, this is the promised land. And by the way, I'm the high priest in these parts of the world. I believe in God too. At this point, Abraham's like almost literally the only man who believes. And now he comes and here comes Melchizedek and he's like, no, you're not alone. I'm with you. So the sheer timing of the one and only appearance of this man Melchizedek, who the writer of Hebrews makes such a big deal about, has a lot of really beautiful personal applications. And the next one I just want to point out, and the reason I read chapter 15, verse 1, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham and said, don't be afraid. It's because he's afraid. Why is he afraid? Because he's vulnerable. Because he just stuck his head up above the crowd and said, I believe in Jesus. In other words, he went out and fought a battle and God blessed him and gave him a supernatural victory. Guess what? He's target. He's enemy number one. And the Lord said, I'm your shield and I will reward you. So there is a sense of vulnerability that we will experience living in this life as a Christian. Jesus comes to us and and right there and right there, my friends, there is a deep connection with our high priest. We call that the fellowship of his sufferings. 
And I don't need to remind you how he suffered at, at, uh, for, for being bold and, and, and loving and truthful enough to tell people, uh, yep, lights come and you love your darkness, therefore you're not coming to the light. <gasps> well, we don't like you. I know that. I knew that before I came. I signed up for this deal, okay? It's a hard world. <laughs> and Jesus famously said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. <laughs> but you're not alone, my brothers and sisters. I've got to believe, and we know this from the Apostle Paul. I mean, he... he as much or more than anybody in the Bible uh, was just a beautiful example of perplexed but not despairing, <laughs> I think were the words he used. Right? And we could see it when he got thrown in jail for doing something the government said, you broke the law. He's like, well, I didn't, but you know, here I am in jail. And he and Silas are just worshiping God, right? Wasn't despairing. Our Lord Jesus. One other final interesting uh, temptation, I guess you'd say, here for Abraham. So we've seen dealing with a carnal brother. We've seen vulnerability for living boldly for his faith. Uh, we have seen uh, the problem of evil uh, on both sides of the story. One other thing that's sort of interesting that might get missed is that um, the old, age-old saying of you have to be as careful after the victory as you were during the war. And that's as clear as a bell. Here comes Abraham, fresh off a stunning victory, and here comes the king of Sodom, and he's like, why don't you just take a whole bunch of goods for yourself and enjoy it? And he's like, no, <laughs> nope. <laughs> what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, loses his own soul? <laughs> what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I'm not going there, King Sodom, King of Sodom, <laughs> right? So it's uh, David faced that. He came back from his defeat of Goliath, right? <laughs> All the ladies came out, lined the streets, right? Saul killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. And David's hearing that. I'm the man. <laughs> right? So, I high priest comes to us at times like that and he offers and he says, feed on me. I'm the man. <laughs> All right? I've come to live inside of you and to help you navigate peace and prosperity which can be some of the most dangerous waters to live in. Helps us keep our focus on Christ. So hopefully that's been encouraging to you. This is Melchizedek. Uh, I see here very clearly a type of Christ as he offered the bread and the wine. So this morning, we'll, as I said, we'll take communion. And uh, Becky, if you would come on back up. Um, Yeah, I guess, why don't we stand?
And uh, now that we're all sufficiently chilled, <laughs> um, it'll be good to just take a moment and uh, we have this beautiful song, Is He Worthy? Which you know is responsive, right? Is He Worthy? He is. So uh, maybe you can look at the lyrics while you file up and get your, your cup with the wafer and the juice. Uh, sorry, one last thing. Um, remember, push all the way down until it snaps, and then you pull it back up, and you can take the, the film off and remove the seal from the juice. So, Father, we thank you that from the Old Testament we see a very clear example of your very heart, of your very power, and your, your interest in your sons and in your daughters. And how you came with, now you come to us this morning with bread and wine. The reminder that you gave it all for us so that you could be in us. So we just want to meditate on that beauty and, and worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please file right up, friends. and. feel the world is broken we do do you feel the shadows deepen we do but do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through we do do you wish that you could see it all made new We do. Do you feel? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of Lord to be the light within our midst it is is it good that we remind ourselves of this it is is anyone worthy is anyone rude and the lamb who died to ransom the slave 
take communion together, so just uh, uncover there if you would. <laughs> Lord, we thank you how you've moved this morning through the word and the worship, the fellowship. Just, you are with us, God. God with us, the hope of glory. God in us, the hope of glory. Lord, renew our vision of you. I pray that uh, no one would feel unworthy. That everything that you went through, Lord, you would receive the reward of your suffering through our tithe of our lives given to you, our souls surrendered in faith. I pray you would just be glorified, Lord, in every heart and mind. Let's partake together, church.
king of righteousness. That means he'll never do wrong, ever. King of peace. Isn't that interesting? Jesus walked into the room with his fearful disciples and he breathed on them. And he said, peace unto you. Go in peace. (laughs) Amen.